thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. My name is Ed Nall. I'm one of the pastors here. That's one of the great privileges of my life. Our senior pastor, Tim, is away uh, this weekend watching his son play a college football game. Uh, As we continue our series, This Is Us. Week one was We Belong to Christ. Week two, We Belong Together. Week three was This Is Us. We Go Into the World and Share the Gospel. And this week, our sermon is titled This Is Us. We Worship Together. Our text this morning will be primarily Psalm 95, so if you have your Bible with you, open up to Psalm 95. And while you're turning there, I'll tell you a brief story. My wife Heidi and I go to Sunset Beach, North Carolina every year. I should more accurately say Heidi goes to the beach, and I go to the beach house. Heidi is a lovely girl who tans beautifully. My skin burns in the presence of a 60-watt bulb. So I'm not a beach person, and yet I love to go to the beach. Two reasons. My wife loves to go to the beach, and I love to see her happy. And the other reason is it removes me from some of the distractions of daily life and from the work of the church, and I can read for several hours each day. I make a list before I go to the beach of the things I'm going to read. So while at the beach, a couple summers ago, I read a book by Fred Kaplan called 1959, The Year That Everything Changed. 1959, The Year That Everything Changed. In 59, art, music, sexual morality technology, space travel, and a lot of other things changed, just like that year. Or the change that was going to come was put into motion. So here, here are just a few of the examples. January 1st, 1959, Fidel Castro and his revolutionaries take over Cuba with far-reaching global consequences. That same year, John F. Kennedy was planning his run for the presidency. The integrated circuit was invented in 1959 by Jack Kilby of Texas Instruments, and IBM sold the first viable business computer. I think Loudoun County Public Schools are still using it. (laughs) May of 1959, Barry Gordy borrowed $800 from his family and friends, and he started Motown Records. Pretty good investment. The birth control pill was legalized in 1959, having far-reaching effects on birth rates, and on sexual morality. In literature, Norman Mailer and Allen Ginsberg were first published, signaling a change in literature that centered more on man and thus less on God, and introduced a much more coarse language into American lit. And then my favorite, in 1959, Miles Davis walked into a studio on 30th Street in New York City, and he began to record Kind of Blue, Uh, the best-selling and probably the most influential jazz album of all time. So there's no denying that 1959 was a very significant year. But there's a missing perspective in Kaplan's book, and that's this. The proper place of man in God's universe is missing. It's just not there. Just as it is tragically missing for many people's lives today. If God is who he says he is then nothing should be discussed with it without at least referencing that it is God's universe in which we live. If, in fact, this proverb says, we make our plans, but God directs our steps, or as that same book of Proverbs says, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wills. 
Or if it's true, as Isaiah says, that his word will accomplish everything he's purposed it to do, then we should always be referencing God in any serious discussion. He made the world and everything in it. And you and I, if we're going to get our lives into a mess, if we try to write the stories of our lives, all the while ignoring the central reality of the universe, the first cause of everything that exists, the one who gives us life and breath and every good thing. So this morning, we're going to take a close look at worship in Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 will give us a proper perspective. We live in God's world under his loving care. So here's where we're going to go this morning. Number one, what is worship? Number two, why do we worship? Number three, how do we worship? And number four, I think it's different in your outline, but what I have is the destination of worship or a warning if we will not worship. So let me read the psalm to you from the English Standard Version, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray for the sermon this morning, that I can preach it like it ought to be preached, and that you can hear it as it ought to be heard. And I'm going to use Psalm 95 as a guide for our prayer. So let's enter into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning that we can sing your praises. For you are the rock of our salvation. We give you thanks that we could make a joyful noise to you and give thanks to you and return some of what you have given to us to you. Lord, you are a great God and you are the king of all kings. There is none like you. You made the sea, you made the dry land, you made the heights of the mountains and the depths of the earth. Help us, Lord, to worship you this morning to bow down before you in reverence, to give you honor and glory. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice today. Help us not to harden our hearts. Help us to trust you, to have faith in you, to listen to what you have to say and to put it into practice. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to do is look at the word worship itself. It comes to us from an old English word, which is worship. A little difficult to say, so over time, like over a couple hundred years, it was shortened to worship. But it means to assign ultimate worth to God. 
That's what it means. And it carries with it this idea of bowing down before him in reverence. And that leads us to our first point, what is worship? I'm going to give you three definitions for what is worship, and then we're going to center in on the third one. But they're all good. Worship is assigning to some thing, person, or idea ultimate worth. It should be God, but often in our lives it is something else. Second definition. I like this one, but it's long. Worship is communion with God in which believers, by grace, center their minds, attention, and their hearts' affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in response to his greatness and his word. That's a good definition, but you won't remember it. So here's the one I want to use today. True worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. And then I'll center it down to its essence, just five words, treasuring God above all else. That's what worship is, treasuring God above all else. Here's a way to determine what you worship in your life. It's a diagnostic question. What thing, person, or idea, if you lost them, would devastate you? What thing, person, or idea, if you lost it, would devastate you? When you have the answer to that question, you know what you worship. A couple examples. Why is it that some people are devastated when they break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Why? Because they have placed their highest value on that person. Because they have, in a very real sense, worshipped that person. And life loses its meaning when that person is gone. Or, why are some people terribly upset or even depressed when they receive criticism? Why is that? Because they have placed ultimate value on what others think of them. In essence, they are worshiping at the altar of the approval of others. When that approval is not there, they are devastated. So worship is about what you desire the most. Because what you desire the most has a tremendous impact on your life. In the first Harry Potter book, Harry discovers the uh, cloak of invisibility that he can wear and not be seen. And he goes exploring in the castle, and he goes into this room, and he sees this ancient mirror. It's called the Mirror of Erised. And as he looks in the mirror, Harry sees himself with his mother and father, and they are happy together as a family. But Harry never saw that in his life because his, his parents were killed when he was very young. So he goes back and he visits the mirror because he sees this thing that he really loves. So he goes and he gets his dweeby little friend, Ron Weasley, and he brings Ron with him. And he thinks that when Ron looks in the mirror that he'll see Harry with his mom and dad. But when Ron looks into the mirror, he sees himself as a sports hero and with everybody gathering around and cheering him on. Ron had always been overshadowed by his brother. Erised is desire spelled backwards. It's a children's book. So the code is pretty simple. The mirror of Erised shows you what you desire the most. As Christians, if there were such a mirror, when we looked into it, we should see God. We should see God and ourselves in proper relationship with him. Not just God's good gifts, but God himself. And in fact... I believe we do have such a mirror. It's the Word of God. And when we look into it, 
the scriptures show us who God is and who we are and that God himself has ultimate worth. True worship of God values God above everything else and involves the mind, the will, and the emotions. I'll talk more about that just a little bit later on. And God commands that we worship together and that we remind ourselves and each other of these truths that we sing, these truths that we share as we read the word, as we hear the preaching of the word. You might ask, is there any real benefit in life to worship? Absolutely. There absolutely is. Tim Keller, in a sermon I heard him give about worship, says there's a practical benefit. Here's the quote. If you are consistently worried or upset about something, if you could, worshiping God is the way to defeat that something. If you could worship God perfectly, nothing would get us down. If you could worship God perfectly, nothing would get you down. So what is worship? And how do we enter into it? Let's look at the first two verses of our psalm. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. A couple of observations. The word us is used four times in the first two verses. Now, this doesn't mean that you cannot worship alone. You can, and I hope that you do. But that is merely rehearsal for when we gather together on the first day of the week and we worship together. This goes against our individualism, which we have raised to a near religion in our culture. But God intends for us to join together and to do some specific things. He commands that we sing. How many of you, when you get to the office in the morning, get together with all your coworkers and sing? Anybody? It's an unusual thing to just come into a room and sing songs. But that's what God has commanded us to do. Why? Well, Martin Luther said, people believe what they sing. And we know from research that singing a melody and it helps you learn something. If we want to teach the alphabet, if we want to teach preposition, there's a preposition song, there's a song for the state capitals, all of that. It's because music helps us to remember things. It's a, a memory aid device. Also, on Martin Luther's day, many people could not read, but they could sing. And they learned a song, and if that song held great truth, they could remember it all week long. And so can we. You can remember the great I am, and you can sing it in your car. So we gather. And we sing joyful songs of thanksgiving and praise. And the content of our songs and the content of the scripture and the content of our sermon testifies that we believe that God is the greatest treasure in the universe. Well, you might say, I don't like to sing or I'm not a very good singer. Well, there's an option for you there. It says, make a joyful noise. You make a joyful noise, I'll sing. It's fine. The point is, to enter into worship with God's people and to express to God and to each other, we worship together, his great worth. To tell him that you're thankful to him for every good gift that you have received. And every time you do that with the right heart attitude, you become just a little bit better worshiper. And you're rehearsing for that day in the new heavens and the new earth when we will worship God perfectly 
in a place where there is no sin to distract us. So that's the first point. What is worship? Treasuring God above all else. Secondly, why do we worship? Verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his. Why? For he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Verse 3 starts with a connecting word. I love connecting words in Scripture. Some translations are better than others at this. I like words like for or therefore or for this reason or because. I like to know why. And God tells us why. So in verse 3, the first reason given is that the Lord is a great God and king of all small g gods. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That's the first reason that we worship him. And then in verses 4 and 5, the psalmist expands these reasons why God is worthy of our adoration. Because he made the world. He made the world. These two verses are what theologians call a mirrorism. Instead of naming everything that God has ever made, which would probably take months or maybe even years, he just says the depths of the earth, the heights of the sky, the sea and the dry land, everything that exists, God made it. It's his. Creation establishes ownership. These verses are meant not only to give us reasons to worship God, but also to put us in our proper place. There is one God who's made everything, and I am not him, and neither are you. Louis XIV began his reign in France when he was four years old, and he reigned for 72 years. He said of himself, I am the great monarch. And another time he said, I am the state. But like all rulers, he eventually abdicated his throne to death. His funeral was a lavish affair with a solid gold casket lined with jewels. It was in a packed and darkened cathedral. And his singular greatness was signified by one candle burning above his casket. Everyone waited as Bishop Mazelon, who was presiding over the service, bent down from the pulpit and extinguished the candle. And then out of the darkness came four words. Only God is great. Only God is great. Louis XIV ruled for 72 years over one country. God reigns over everything that's ever existed for eternity. Only God is great. Then David calls us to worship again in verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why? For he is our God. He's our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He calls us to kneel before the Lord, our maker. The most common Greek word in the New Testament for worship is proskuneo. It carries the idea of servanthood, submission to the will of God, kneeling down before him. Now that kneeling before God is not necessarily a physical kneeling, although it may be and sometimes it should be. It is, though, an attitude of the heart. It is spiritual. So worship is a response to God and his majesty 
that should engage the whole person. It's not like a sideline. Worship should engage the whole person, the mind, the hearts, and the will. The mind, as we hear the truth and we consider it, our hearts as we are moved by God's love for us. This is, we must be moved by this. The God of the universe has set his favor upon us. And then the will, as we purpose to obey what we have heard, worship without the intention to obey is a sham. And God knows our hearts. Then in verse 7, he gives us another reason to worship. He is our God. He's our God. He's not just the creator of all things. He has chosen to be our God. It's the original covenant. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is really good news. Even though God is transcendent over all people and things, even though he is entirely other than we are, even though he exists outside of time and space, even though, as Psalm 8 says, his glory is above the heavens, and even though he created everything ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing, simply by speaking, that God, that transcendent God, has chosen to draw near to us. He is close at hand because he has chosen us to be his people. He cares for us. If God were merely an awesome king who loved righteousness and hated unrighteousness, that would be very bad news for us. But he is our God, and we are his people. And he forgives our sin when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you an example from the New Testament of genuine worship that recognizes two things, holds two things in tension. One is the reality of indwelling sin, and the other is the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. So those things are held in tension here. Pastor Tim preached from Romans 8 a few weeks ago. I'm going to back up a little bit into chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, remembering, of course, that chapter and verse divisions did not exist in the original manuscripts. So at the end of 7, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm not going to read it to you. Paul is saying, the good he wishes to do, he does not do. And the evil that he wishes not to do, he finds that he does anyway, sometimes. And so he exclaims, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's his question. Paul is racked by his inability to obey perfectly. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Paul worships. Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's worship. And then he connects the worship with truth. I'm going to show you the truth here in Romans 8. This is what he says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, I sometimes sin. Yes, I sometimes do the evil that I wish I did not do. But there is no condemnation because I am in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? 
by sending his own son. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, as a sacrifice for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law, God's just requirement of the law, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What's Paul doing here? He's worshiping, and he is preaching the gospel to himself. And he's preaching it to the Christians in Rome, and by extension, he's preaching it to us. But he's reminding himself of what God has done. Paul has great reasons to worship, and so do we. God is our God. God has done for us in Christ what we could not do, what all of us in the world together striving could never do. Jesus did. And so we worship together. Brief review. What is worship? Treasuring Christ above all else. Why do we worship? Because of the greatness and because of the love that God has for us. How do we worship? With a joyful noise, with songs, with thanksgiving, with praise, and the intention to obey God's will. Then Psalm 95 takes what seems like an unusual turn in verse 7. This psalm about praise and worship and the greatness of God contains this stern warning to the people of Israel. So let's read it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That seems like an odd way to end a psalm about worship, but it's not. It's appropriate, and it was greatly needed in David's day and is still needed in our day. The today up in verse 7 is any day you read this, it's right now. It's so David is saying to us, listen up, right now I have a warning for you, don't harden your hearts. Don't miss what God has done for you. Don't fail to worship God in faith. Remember these words of Jesus in Matthew 15? These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Let's just look at each phrase for a minute. These people honor me with their lips. So, to all external observations... They are singing or they're reciting scripture. They're doing something that makes it look like they're worshiping. But the second phrase, their heart is far from me. So God sees the attitude of the heart, not just the external. And he knows that they don't really have faith in him, that they don't really love him. And so Jesus draws a conclusion. In vain do they worship me. If our hearts are not in it, if we grumble we complain, even though God has done so much for us, then our worship is not genuine. We must combine the truth that we are hearing with trust in God that moves our hearts to obey Him. 
We don't want to miss out on the promise of God. The rebellion in the wilderness was particularly terrible because it took place immediately after God had delivered his people out of Egypt just as he had promised to do. He delivers them out of Egypt using the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea on dry land, the closing up of the Red Sea over their enemies as they are destroyed, and yet they began to doubt Moses, and they began to doubt by extension God. And they actually said to Moses, are there, are there no graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out in the wilderness to die? Now, God has demonstrated that he's brought them out, but they still will not trust him. So David, in Psalm 95, is warning us not to do what the wilderness generation did. They failed to trust, to trust God. They didn't combine the great miracles they saw with faith in God. So God responds to their lack of faith and does not allow them to go into the promised land, into Canaan, to go into the rest of God from their enemies. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who went in because they believed God. They trusted him. And we might think that their story ends there, for they died in the wilderness. But we have an inspired commentary on Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 13. When I say inspired, I mean that unlike, I don't know, the couple hundred commentaries that I have on my shelves in my office, this commentary is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God in Hebrews. It begins in Hebrews 3, 7 through 12, which is a paraphrasing, but very much the same language of the warning that was given in David's Psalm 95. And then in verse 13, remember our sermon title, this is us, we worship together. In verse 13, he has a remedy for our lack of faith, or how we build our faith. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today. As long as it is called today. We cannot exhort each other if we never come together. And you can text me, but it's not the same. We come together to worship from the heart, hearing the truth and the word of God, and we encourage each other in this battle against unbelief. That's the battle. The battle is for faith. Verse 19 says, they were not able to enter the promised land because of unbelief. So there's Israel's problem, and it's our problem as well. Unbelief. John Piper put it this way. Unbelief is such a constant and dangerous temptation that we must help each other fight it off. Persevering in faith to the end is a community project. Encourage each other today. As long as it is called today, we worship God together. Now, I want to read uh, Hebrews 4, 7b through 13 to you. We don't have time to study this passage like, like I would love to, but it's, uh, we can draw a couple of points from it. Uh, Hebrews 7, I'll start in 7b, or Hebrews 4, excuse me, start in 7b. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So here in the New Testament, same message, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. 
What this means is Joshua lived at a certain time, David lives hundreds of years later, but there's still this rest in view. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You see the picture here of the people encouraging one another? We're supposed to make sure that no one falls by the wayside. That's part of what we do here. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I'm not preaching a worship a message about worship today because I'm concerned if so-and-so is worshiping or not. I can't make that judgment, God, but God can. And that's what that last part of that text is about. Everything is open to God. Nothing is hidden from God. The attitude of our hearts is exposed to him. Derek Kidner in his commentary on Psalm 95 says, these verses about rest apply to salvation in Jesus Christ. And that Hebrews forbids us to confine Psalm 95's thrust to Israel. The warning not to miss the rest that God provides was for Israel and it's for us. Don't miss the rest. That today in verse 7 is right now this very moment. And the you is none other than ourselves. And the promised rest in Canaan was only a foreshadowing of the rest that was to come in salvation from sin by grace through faith in Christ alone. What do you see if you could look into a mirror that reveals what you most desire? What do you see? If it's anything other than God, it can't forgive you. It can't give you rest. If you worship money and you fail to get enough, money won't forgive you, and it certainly won't give you rest. If you worship accomplishment and fail to reach the heights you hope to attain, accomplishment cannot forgive you, and it will not give you rest. Rather, the opposite is true. God is the only being in the universe that when you fail him, can forgive you and give you everlasting joy everlasting rest from your sin, everlasting life. So let's not miss the rest of God. Let's not harden our hearts. I want to close with these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. They're familiar words, but don't glance over them just because they're familiar. Listen closely. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why is his burden light? Because he carries it for us. It's impossible for sinners like us to do a good 
do, do enough good works that we could earn salvation? How many works would there have to be? How would we know when we had done enough? Martin Luther, the great reformer, used to crawl on his knees up these stone steps in Rome until his knees bled because he was doing penance for his sin. He was just had no rest in his soul at all until he found Christ, until he found the justification before God came through faith. Religion says, I will do good works and God will forgive me. Jesus says, trust in my finished work on the cross and your sins will be forgiven and you will find rest for your souls and you will have everlasting life in me. That's a message worthy of our praise, our thanksgiving, and our worship. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Four words. God, man, Christ, response. God created the world and everything in it. He owns it. And because he does, we are accountable to him. Man came into the world, was given dominion over the earth, but we sinned. And the wages of sin, or what I earn for my sinfulness, is death. Christ came into the world and lived the life that I could not live, a perfect and sinless life. And because he did, anyone who places their trust in him will be saved. He faced every temptation that you or I will ever face, and yet he remained without sin. He's the one perfect worshiper of God. And then there's response. That's the message of grace. How will we respond? Will we believe? Will we trust in God? That's the message today. And that's why we worship. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, this would be a great day to do it. It'd be a great day to say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. And I want to turn from it and I want to follow you. I believe in Jesus. So. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time together with these people, uh, your people, who trust in you. Thank you for this church and faithful gospel witness for 135 years. You have been faithful to this church, Lord. You built it. It belongs to you. We belong to you. Lord, if there's some in the room who have never placed a trust in you, would you do that work in their hearts even this morning? And we will worship you. Today, tomorrow, and the rest of our lives, we will worship you together. Thank you in Jesus' name.